continuing our series on biblical allegories. Tonight's message is Remember. Uh, my original title for it was What Mean Ye by These Stones? Um, I settled finally on Remember. Uh, in our study of allegorical references <coughs> to Scripture to date, we trace the progression from sin to salvation and then onto the struggle between the flesh and the spirit that centers on a war in our minds. Uh, last week we discovered uh, that protection for the mind is provided by the helmet of salvation, the new spiritual life within us that properly informs our thinking and empowers us to resist the tide of anti-God information and stimulation that emanates from this present evil world. In tonight's message, we're going to consider a simple yet effective aid in the battle. Remembering who we were, who we are, and how we got here. And here being where each of us is at any point in our spiritual development. We previously noted that salvation is experienced as two things. Firstly, an event, a date, time, and place when you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior and you were born again into the kingdom of God, the family of God. And secondly, a process of sanctification, uh, drawing closer to God, cleaning up our lives, being made holier. Uh, and that happens over time as we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ through exercising his mind and walking and warring in his power and memory are a very important ingredient important important part of that process memories don't change the fact of our salvation but they are a vital component of our subsequent spiritual growth it's important that you remember we're going to see tonight the importance that God places on it. Uh, the allegorical pictures that Scripture employs in this context are associated with monuments or memorials primarily comprised of rocks or stones. Uh, and that's foundational material, permanent and powerful and sculpted by God in the first place and not man. In one important instance, a recurring picture of a great rock depicting Jesus Christ is used to demonstrate how seriously God takes the allegory he gives us. And Moses was punished when he didn't follow God's instructions in bringing water from the rock in the wilderness. On the first occasion, and we're going to read that in scripture in a moment, Moses was to strike the rock. And that's a picture of Jesus being struck for our sins, dying on the cross for our sins. Later, Moses was taught, uh, told to speak to the rock. And that's a, a picture of our relationship with God, with uh, Jesus Christ, uh, after our salvation. It's an intimate family relationship. If you want something from him, you don't have to... Uh, jump through hoops, you don't have to do any mighty deeds, and you certainly don't have to crucify him again, as the Catholics do every time they celebrate what they call the Mass. Uh, 
But Moses lost his temper and struck the rock the second time. And for that, God refused him entrance to the promised land. Um, he spoiled the picture of the one sacrifice that is sufficient to provide a living water for people of all times. Moses lost the opportunity to enter the promised land. Let's begin by looking at Exodus chapter 17. We've got a lot of scriptures to get through, but they're all good. And let's just pause to pray and ask God's blessing as we proceed. Father, thank you so much. Uh, there is no greater privilege and uh, no greater blessing than to break the bread of life for your people, to share in the feast at your table. And I pray that you bless me tonight, bless each of us as we listen. May Jesus Christ be glorified with every word that's spoken. For it's in his name we ask it. Amen. So we begin the story in um, Exodus chapter 17, verses 3 to 6. The background here is um, they had left uh, Egypt. They had miraculous deliverance, gone through the Red Sea. They're in the wilderness, and they reach a place where they run out of water. And what's their response? Uh, at the end of verse 2, uh, verse 1, it says, There was no water for the people to drink. Wherefore the people did chide with Moses. That is, they complained. They had a real problem with Moses. And said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said unto them, Why chide ye with me? Wherefore do ye tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water, and the people murmured against Moses and said, Wherefore is this that thou hast brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our cattle with thirst? Can you believe it? It wasn't very long before that that they were begging God for 400 years. Begging God, crying out to God. We're slaves. We've been horribly treated. Please get us out of this mess. And God does in the most miraculous way. And no sooner do they get out of Egypt, on their way to the promised land, the first little obstacle they meet, they start complaining. We should have, you should never have brought us out, out of Egypt. You, you brought us out here to kill us. Now, lest you think they're awful people, he's talking about us. These illustrations in the Bible are there to teach us and warn us. Do not be like that. And unfortunately, many times we are. And Moses cried unto the Lord, saying, What shall I do unto this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And Moses, the Lord said to Moses, Go on before the people, take the elders of Israel, uh, take the rod with you, and then in verse 6, Behold, I will stand before thee there, this is God speaking to Moses, upon the rock in Horeb, and thou shalt smite the rock, and there shall come water out of it, and the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. Let's go to Numbers chapter 20 and see what happened after that. Uh, by the way, that I think was their second or third complaint. Uh, we're now 11 complaints later. It seems just every five minutes they've got something to moan about. Well, here we are again. Uh, chapter 20, verse 2. Uh, by the way, I hope you have your notes. All the scriptures are in there. And I apologize, I didn't make enough copies. I'll make more next week. Um, there was no water for the congregation. And they gathered themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. The people chose with Moses. Just look at these people. They are 
the most superficial bunch imaginable. It's always the same story. The people chose this moment and spake, saying, Would God that we had died when our brethren died before the Lord. And why have you brought up the congregation of the Lord into this wilderness that we and our cattle should die here? And wherefore have you made us to come up out of Egypt to bring us into this evil place? It is no place of seed or of figs or of vines or of pomegranates, neither is there any water to drink. And so God tells Moses in chapter 8, Take the rod, gather thou the assembly together, thou and Aaron thy brother, and speak ye unto the rock before their eyes, and it shall give forth his water. And thou shalt bring forth to them water out of the rock, so thou shalt give the congregation and the beasts drink. And Moses took the rock, the rod from before the Lord as he commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the congregation together before the rock. And he said unto them, Hear now ye rebels, must we fetch you water out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand, and with his rod he smote the rock twice. And the water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank, and the beasts also. And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron, Because ye believe me not, to sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore ye shall not bring this congregation into the land which I have given them. This is the water of Meribah, the word, Hebrew word means contention. Because the children of Israel strove with the Lord, and he was sanctified in them. Well, why is this such a big deal? The Bible tells us, isn't it wonderful, we are in the Old Testament and the New Testament, and uh, they just keep us fully informed. Let's go to Hebrews. Remember last week I told you I've got this fancy binder that's got all these wonderful tags on it. Um, and this is a wonderful passage of scripture in Hebrews chapter 9 from verse 24. Um, For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures or illustrations or representations of the truth, talking here about the earthly temple. And it's saying that Christ doesn't enter into the Holy of Holies in the earthly temple uh, because they're just representations of the temple in heaven, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us, not that he should offer himself often, as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with blood of others. In the Old Testament, each year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go into the most holy place and there he would offer the blood of atonement for the sins of the people for the whole year. It was the, the greatest day in their calendar. And it would be done every single year because the blood of bulls and of goats cannot pay permanently for your sins. It was a representation of the truth. So it says here, Jesus doesn't have to go into that temple every year, into that holy place. For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world, but now, once in the end of the world, hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Oh, he's coming soon. He's coming back. But in the meantime, he only had to die once. And what Moses says unusually, when he struck, struck the rock the second time, 
He broke this picture. He shattered this representation. He marred what God was trying to teach us. And what he was trying to teach us was that when Jesus died on that cross, that was enough for eternity. To save our wretched soul forever. To pay for every sin we've ever done, ever will do, all the way to heaven. Chapter 10, verses 11 and 14, repeats this. And every priest standeth daily, verse 11, ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, speaking of Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God, from henceforth expecting to see that his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever them that are sanctified. Hallelujah. Glory to God. If Jesus Christ is your Savior, you are saved indeed. You don't need anything more than that. So let's look in some greater detail at these allegorical pictures that God provides for us in Scripture. A very wise, very, very wise, clever, wonderful God who's given us this incredible book that is so packed with wisdom and teaching and insight and revelation. And you open it and it's like a movable piece every time you read the word again. In scripture, Jesus is likened to, in Psalm 95 and verse 1, the rock of our salvation. That's what he's called. He's also likened to the rock in the wilderness providing life-giving water. That's in Corinthians. Let's look at that because it's a beautiful, beautiful passage. Uh, Israel's history is an example. You look down at verse 4, um, speaking of the Israelites in the wilderness, they did all, in verse 3 says, they did all eat the same spiritual meat. In verse 4, they did all drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank of the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. But with many of them, God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. And here, the explanation of all of these allegories. Now these things were our examples, to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And then, if we go back to the great prophet Daniel, you see there an amazing prophecy of the end times. Daniel is the prophet of the end times. And there we discover that Jesus is a different type of rock from the one spoken of in Exodus. Um, and that is Daniel chapter 2, verses 44 to 45. Uh, Daniel is interpreting uh, Nebuchadnezzar's dream here. He had a fantastic dream of various kingdoms that could come to rule the world. And in verse 44, in the days of these kings, this is Daniel's interpretation, shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom. By the way, we're living in those days now. Will set up a, a, a set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other peoples, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. That is bad news for those who think they're going to set up a one world government. For as much as thou sawest that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it break in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver representations of these earthly kingdoms and the gold, 
The great God hath made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter, and the dream is certain, and the interpretation thereof is sure. Jesus Christ is pictured here as a stone that comes out of a mighty mountain. It's not cut out with hands. It's a supernatural event. And that stone, that rock, that immovable rock, crushes everything in its path. Let's go to Luke chapter 20 to see a very scary continuation of that picture. Jesus is here uh, confronted by the Pharisees who arguing with the Jewish leaders and uh, interpreting scripture for them. And he says in verse 17, And he beheld them and said, What is this then that is written? The stone which the builders rejected, the same is become the head of the corner. Uh, he's quoting scripture there and he's talking about himself. Becoming the foundation stone, the cornerstone of the temple. And look at verse 18. Take a deep breath. Whosoever shall fall upon that stone shall be broken. But on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. That's one of the scariest verses in the whole Bible. What he's saying to us, my dear brothers and sisters, if you're a Christian, God expects you to throw yourself on Christ and be broken by him. Yet he wants to rid you of yourself, your old self. The self that was a sinner, that is rebellious, that uh, is wrapped up in its own life, doesn't want to follow God, loves sin, hates righteousness. He says, fall on Jesus and let him break you. In another place, Jesus said, you want to be my disciple? Get up on a cross and die every day. He's talking about denying yourself. Put me first in your life. That's what we do, hopefully. But on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. Talking out of the unsaved. Their faith is horrifying. That rock cut out of the mountain, that rock that delivers spiritual water, that rock, that immovable rock, that presence of God, the kingdom of God, the Son of God, the day will come when every opposition to him will be ground to powder and cast forever into eternal damnation. Underline that picture, that picture in your Bible, and every time you read it, say, thank God I'm saved. And then we also have a foundational rock of revelation upon whom the church will be built, and that we find in Matthew chapter 16. I'm just starting moving into this with you, because I only have three tabs. Matthew chapter 16, and uh, uh, Jesus asks, who do men say that I am? They have all sorts of different theories, and at last Simon Peter uh, pipes up and says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee, that thou art Peter, that's his word meaning a little stone. And upon this rock, the mighty rock, the mighty rock that is going to become a kingdom that will dominate the entire world, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Except in this context, he's talking about the rock of revelation that is the birth of his church. You and I are saved because there was a day in our life when we cried out to God 
for help. And Jesus became real to us. That was a supernatural act. It's not something you invented in your mind. It's not something you could have dreamed of in your wildest dreams. God had to reveal that to you. Your Savior. And so that dropped when, when Peter blurted out, You're the Christ. You're the one we're looking for. Jesus said, My Father chose you that, and that's how I'm going to build my church. Everyone who understands that will become part of my family. Yeah. Hallelujah. And it gets better. You let's, let's look at stones, at stones, at altars. Now, an altar is an elevated structure where religious ceremonies may be performed. The Old Testament altars were made of stones that were not to be shaped by human hand. That was their main feature. In every instance, you'll see when God tells us to build an altar, He says, just get rocks, pile them up, and that's it. Don't touch them any further. Old Testament altars. Uh, the implication of them rather is clear. When we get involved in crafting places of worship, our professed focus on God tends to become a monument to our yeah. devotion and skill. Yeah. As may be seen in any of the world's great cathedrals, I mentioned once before I've visited most of them, in, most of the ones in Europe, uh, and instead of being useful tools as gathering places for worshippers, their intricate and extravagant beauty is a distraction that draws attention to those who designed them and built them. God somehow plays into the background as people stand around and say, oh, look at this, it's gorgeous. God doesn't permit that kind of competition with himself. Through the mouths of his prophets, he condemns and sometimes mocks idols. There's a wonderful passage in Isaiah 46, verses 5 to 9. You can read that later. In a New Testament description of the body of Christ, we see that God reserved for himself the job of molding us into a living temple. He builds altars for his glory, one rough stone at a time. I'm looking for a room full of rough stones here. But, you know, the longer you walk with them, the prettier you look. Smoother you look, or the rough edges get worn away. When Moses instructed the Israelites to build an altar for worship after entering the promised land, you can read that in Deuteronomy 27, 1 to 8, he specifies the use of whole stones unmarked by any iron tools. Joshua later, later repeated this instruction. If you go to Joshua, Joshua chapter 8, you see that there. Joshua 8, 30 and 31. Then Joshua built an altar unto the Lord of God, Lord God of Israel in Mount Ebal, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded the children of Israel, as is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of whole stones over which no man hath lifted up any iron. And they offered thereon burnt offerings unto the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. Much earlier in Israel's history, uh, you'll recall the picture of Jacob <coughs> falls asleep one night he has a rock for a pillow he has this fantastic dream of this uh, ladder up to heaven angels ascending and descending he wakes up in the morning and he says God was in this place and I didn't know it by the way that in itself is a convicting statement God is often in this place 
and many of us don't know it. Uh, we need to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. But the main point here is uh, he then, uh, in this thanks to God, turns that pillow into an altar. Takes it there and says, okay, this is where I'm going to worship God. Stones used in the construction of mountains, of monuments rather, were treated differently. Monumental stones, you have altars, places of worship. Don't you try and pretty it up at all. This is about God, not about you. But then there are monumental stones, and that's about us. Uh, they for us, acting as historical markers for events. In the Old Testament, Messages or reminders of their purpose would often be tucked into more stone or into, into a covering of plaster. At the beginning of the story of the people of God in the Promised Land, we read of stones taken from the bed of the River Jordan as they passed over on dry ground. It was a miraculous event, just as miraculous as the parting of the Red Sea, the Jordan River parted, and they walked into the Promised Land, and stones were piled up on the banks of the river as a monument to the crossing. Let's go to Joshua chapter 4. And uh, let's see. Let's start in verse 1, I think. Yeah. Uh, and it came to pass when all the people were clean passed over Jordan that the Lord spake unto Joshua, saying, Take you twelve men out of the people, out of every tribe of man, and command them, saying, Take you hence out of the midst of Jordan, out of the place where the priest priests stood firm, twelve stones, and you shall carry them over with you and leave them in the lodging place where ye shall lodge this night. Verse 6, that this may be a sign among you, that when your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, what mean ye by these stones? Why are these stones on the riverbank? Then you shall answer them, that the waters of Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord when it passed over Jordan, the waters of Jordan were cut off, and these stones shall be for a memorial unto the children of Israel forever. Hallelujah. The, the intent is clear here, and it applies equally in our day. When God picks us up from the mud beneath the river of sin, our life becomes or be, should become a testimony to his miraculous salvation and provision. All who pass by us and look at us should ask the question, who are you? Why are you different? What changed you? You are a memorial to God of God's work in your life and a memorial to other Christians of God's work in your life. And of course to the unsaved. It's important not only that our changed lives should should be so noticeable as to attract attention, but also that we should often remind ourselves of how the change happened. When temptations or discouragements assail us, we are strengthened when we remember just how bad it was before we saved and how good it is now. When you might be going through a tough day, you might be in the middle of a trial, just remind yourself what it was like when you were lost, alone, afraid, terrified at the thought of death. Moses exhorted the Israelites to remember that they were disposed to forget 
And so they constantly complain and foolishly yearn for the good old days, back in Egypt when they were slaves. The litany of their moaning and groaning and harking back to a life that once enslaved them and caused, it, caused them to beg God for deliverance is an embarrassing display of the fickleness, shallowness of the human heart that forgets so easily. From Exodus 2, 23 to 24, to Numbers 21 and verse 5, there are 12 recorded instances of them complaining, and we've already seen some of them. It's always the same. God, you're treating us badly. You don't care about us. We're hungry. We're thirsty. We're tired. We're lost. Whatever the complaint was, it was God's fault, and they wanted to go back to Egypt. And again, that's a picture of us. Every time I read these scriptures, I feel personally embarrassed because I'm reminded, yeah. well, don't be too hard on those Israelites. Yeah. Yeah. We've done the same thing, buddy. Uh, and so have you, ma'am. And sir, we're all in the same boat. Read about yourself in the Bible. Wandering for 40 years in the wilderness, however, was not necessary. It should have taken a few months at most to cover the 200 miles from Egypt to Canaan. It took 40 years. And like those wandering Israelites, many Christians never seem to leave the wilderness and wonder why they don't experience a victorious Christian life. The answer is that they are not very familiar with God's word and they don't spend much time thinking about their walk with God or about them. A lot of them, a lot of our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ are in such a rebellious and confused state that they become easy prey to the so-called prosperity gospel that declares they can claim all that milk and honey just by faith. And that somehow God will be miraculously transformed into a heavenly ATM machine that will meet all their needs. They forget who they are and where they come from and have little desire to learn anything more about God or about themselves. May that never be said of any member of this church. As long as our pastor keeps yelling at us every Sunday, it's not going to happen. The journey from Exodus, enslaved by the God of this world, to Romans chapter 8, the victorious Christian life, is not quite that simple. But it's also not very complicated, and will not take a lifetime as we learn from constant reverence to God's word, and submit to Christ-centered preaching and fellowship in a local assembly of fellow believers. Mature spiritual leaders, and most importantly, an under-shepherd dedicated to building Christ's kingdom and not his own will ensure our spiritual growth, rapid spiritual growth, and monuments and memorials to our progress are an aid to that end, to our growth, our memories, the things we do, the things we the, the little memories we create to remind us who we are, where we come from, where we're going. So let's look at a few memorial stones. The closing chapter of the Promised Land Conquest records a speech in which the Israelites are reminded about what God has done for them to bring them to that point. And Joshua makes a covenant raising a great, great stone as a witness. That's Joshua 24, 
and verses 26 to 27. Joshua 24, 26 to 27. He makes a speech to them, and then he writes it down in verse 26. We read, And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God, and took a great stone and set it up there under an oak that was the sanctuary of the Lord, that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said unto the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness unto us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord which he spake unto us. It shall be therefore a witness unto you, lest we deny God. What a great reminder that is. And so Abel enable our remembering uh, New Testament Christians aren't really in the business of building memorials out of rocks and stones. Uh, but scripture su suggests many types of memorials. Exodus 12, 12 to 14. Do you remember what happened there? Uh, it was the Passover. And do you remember what God said? When I see the blood, I will pass over you. That was a memorial. That was a sign right there. Not for them. They were in their houses. Scared. The death angel was coming. God had told them, take the blood of an innocent lamb, put it on the doorpost and lintels of your house. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. Hallelujah. Luke 22, 19. Fantastic, wonderful memorial. Do you know what that one says? This is my body that is broken for you. Take, eat, do this in remembrance of me. Every time we take the communion together, we are remembering, reminding ourselves. That's why communion services are so important. Never take them lightly. It should be a time of self-examination, a time when you come to God and remind yourself how fortunate you are. What a wonderful God we serve. How great it is to have your sins wiped away. And all you've got to look forward to is an eternity in heaven with your Savior. Hallelujah. Do this in remembrance of me. In Malachi chapter 3, one of my uh, personal favorites. I like to come back to this often because it's just so beautiful. It's so, so encouraging and wonderful. And Malachi, the, the last book in the Old Testament, verse 16. Then they that feared the Lord, speaking of us, they that feared the Lord spoke often one to another, and the Lord hearkened. I like that word hearkened. It doesn't just mean, yeah, yeah, I listen to him. It means this. He literally then hears. He hears us talk about him. He hears you praying to him. He he reads your thoughts about him and he stops what he's doing and says, I'm going to listen to that. That's how precious you and I are to him. Then they that feared the Lord spake often one to another and the Lord hearkened and heard it and a book of remembrance was written before him. A book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord and that thought upon his name. And look at that next verse. And they shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. In that day when I make up my deal, and I will spare them, as a man spareth his own son that serveth him. That's one of the most beautiful statements ever written. And it was written by the God who called the universe into existence by spoken word. And he says, your life 
is so precious to me. Your thoughts about me are so precious to me. Your conversations with each other, your coming to church, your fellowship is so precious. When you do those things, I'm going to record them in heaven to remember what you've done. And remind myself, you're mine. You're going to be my jewels in heaven. There's a book in heaven right now with those black records in it for you to write. And if that doesn't pull you with joy, you need to check your joy monitor. Remember the day of your salvation. Typified by the story of the sacrificial lamb and the Red Sea crossing when you turned your back on the world. Remember the day of your consecration. Typified by the Jordan crossing when you turned your back on your old self. That's what the Jordan crossing is all about. Two very similar crossings. Water pass, two they go, but it typifies something very important. You turn your back on the world first, and then you spend the rest of your life learning how to turn your back on your own self. And so in conclusion, remember. Remember your salvation. Remember where you came from. Remember what God has done for you. Remember God's abundant gifts and mercies, special times, special places, special experiences with God. Establish traditions and memories. Tell often about the good things God has done for you. Share it especially to your children. Oh, you should, you should never miss an opportunity to tell your children about the good things God has done for you. Not to draw attention to yourself, but to Him. Repent if you've wandered from your beginnings. Repair the broken altar. Gather the stones. And remember. But it's inevitable that sometimes we forget. And I want to read to you from Charles Spurgeon. My dear wife found this quote for me. Uh, and it fits so beautifully in this message. Charles Spurgeon's amazing perspective on remembering and how God compensates for our forgetfulness from his devotional morning and evening. As I was writing this, she was reading it and said, hey, it's good. God does, these are Spurgeon's words, God does not say, when you shall look upon the rainbow and you shall remember my covenant, then I will not destroy the earth. But it is gloriously put, not upon our memory, which is fickle and frail, but upon God's memory, which is infinite and immutable or unchangeable. The bow shall be in the cloud and I will look upon it, that I may re remember the everlasting covenant. It is not my remembering God, it is God's remembering me which is the ground of my safety. It is not my laying hold of his covenant, but his covenant laying hold on me. Glory be to God. The whole of the bulwarks of salvation are secured by divine power, and even the minor towers, which we may imagine might have been left to man, are guarded by almighty strength. Even the remembrance of the covenant is not left to our memories. For we might forget, but our Lord cannot forget the saint who has graven on the palms of his hands. That's what the Bible tells us. Our names 
are engraved in the palms of your hands. You'll never forget that. It is with us as with Israel. The blood was upon the lintel and the two side posts, but the Lord did not say, when you see the blood, I will pass over, it, over you. But when I see the blood, I will pass over you. My looking to Jesus brings me joy and peace, but it is God's looking to Jesus which secures my salvation. And that of all his elect. Since it is impossible for our God to look at Christ, our bleeding surety, and then to be angry at us for the sins we've committed. It is not of man, neither by man, but of the Lord alone. We should remember the covenant, covenant, and we shall do it through divine grace. But the hinge of our statement does not end there. It is in God remembering us, not our remembering him. And hence, the covenant is an everlasting covenant. Let's pray. Father, what what can we say to you that could ever adequately express our thanks?